0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. So in my college years, I was a uh, unhealthy Perfectionist. Um, I approached every assignment with an all or nothing mindset, and nothing wasn't an option, which meant I put the pro in procrastination. That was my job. Because the desire to sort of write the perfect paper or to do the perfect assignment was such a burden to me that I put it off until the very, very last minute. Anyone else? Can I get an amen? You know this? You know the story? So here's the thing. The sad thing, it worked. It actually kind of worked. I would lock myself into the computer lab, which was a thing, I guess, when I was in college. Um, And I would lock myself in there with coffee and snicker bars. And then 12 hours later, I would press save. I would emerge into the morning sunlight with a pretty good paper. And no sleep. And then I would carry this habit into graduate school. But here's the thing about that. Seminary for me was way too demanding for that habit. So, my unhealthy procrastination, my unhealthy perfectionism needed to give way to something healthier. Something more sustainable, something more healthy, something that honored my gifts and my calling, but also honored my limits and most of all, honored the Lord. Is that possible? You might be asking. If so, what is it? And what does Hebrews have to say about it? Well, actually, more than you think. Uh, This morning, if you've been following with us, we are going to look at the first 18 verses here of chapter 10. If you have your own Bible, I'd encourage you to open that. We also have scripture journals that you're free to take. And as I read this, I want you to pay attention to the word perfect. Is in a world of unhealthy perfectionism, Hebrews points to a better way. I'll read and I ask you to follow along with me and then we'll pray. This is God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, referring to the Day of Atonement there, to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, that's Jesus, when he said above, you neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once Those who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, "This is the covenant that I will be, that I will make with them," after those days, declares the Lord, "I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds." And then He adds, "I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more." Where there is forgiveness. With these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so, Lord, would my words, would our meditation of Your words in Scripture, be pleasing and acceptable to You? A rock and a redeemer. And as we cast our attention on you, would you miraculously, by the Holy Spirit, whom we believe in, soften our hearts, awaken our imaginations so that we would see Jesus and that we would encounter him as beautiful, more beautiful than every good thing in our life, so that we would follow him, we would love him, we would worship him, and that our lives would be transformed by him and by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So around the same time that I was pulling all-nighters because of my unhealthy perfectionism, I was also exploring what I sensed was a call to full-time ministry. Those things were happening at the same time. After graduation, my plan was a call to full-time ministry on campus. Actually, campus here at Ohio State. And to become a campus minister, I had to fill out an application. What I had to do at that moment was evaluate... Every single area of my life, inside and out. And let me tell you, if I had an unhealthy perfectionism in relationship to my grades, imagine what this application process did to my relationship with God. I remember telling a mentor, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail this application process. And if I fail this application process, I'm going to get embarrassed before everybody in my life and everybody that I'm asking for support. And everybody, I'm asking for prayer. I'm going to get embarrassed if I fail this test. And this friend of mine, his response was not, Joe, um, let's sit down. What I see in that is an unhealthy perfectionism. Let's talk. Instead, what I received at that moment was, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. God would they are worst fears. And that response fueled a year or more of unhealthy perfectionism in my ministry. And it wrecked, in a very significant way, the way that I related to them. And I keep saying unhealthy perfectionism. What do I mean with that? Well, let's talk about that. According to my former counseling professor, Richard Winter... Uh, there's an important difference he says between healthy perfectionism and what he calls un- well, what he calls healthy perfectionism and then what I've been calling unhealthy perfectionism. So in his book Perfecting Ourselves to Death, he quotes expert Don Hamachek. Healthy perfectionists are those who derive a very real sense of pleasure from the labors of painstaking effort and who feel free to be less precise as the situation permits. Normal perfectionists tend to enhance their self-esteem, rejoice in their skills, and appreciate a job well done. But too often, I think this healthy pursuit of excellence skids off of the street and into the gutter of what I call, and what he calls, unhealthy perfectionism. My old friend. This is when efforts, even their best ones, never seem quite good enough. At least in their own eyes. It always seems to these people that they could and should do better. Now how do you know if you're healthy or unhealthy? According to Richard Winter, you've got to dig into the motivation, and that's hard work, but it's so crucial. Richard Winter actually says healthy perfectionists unhealthy perfectionists rather are motivated by fear of negative consequences, failure, rejection, or punishment. Healthy perfectionists are motivated by a desire to achieve something good, whereas unhealthy perfectionists are motivated by fear, fear of failure, fear of rejection, Fear of punishment. Friends, if my life is a car meant to run on clean fuel, I've been putting this dirty fuel in my engine for way too long. How about you? I mean, how many of our pursuits right now are fueled by fear of failure? How many of our pursuits right now are fueled by fear of rejection or fear of punishment? I've been told that the new David Beckham documentary gets after this. Um, Here's one of the most excellent soccer players of all time, not the GOAT, but one of the best, whose excellence was driven by one ingredient, fear of his dad. So according to one article that summarizes this series, Beckham was, quote, afraid of his father's feedback and felt compelled to practice hours every day. Let me ask you, what role does fear play in your pursuits? Where might you see unhealthy perfectionism at play in your pursuits right now? Winter uses the work of Miriam Elliott and Susan Meltzner to unpack five common flavors of unhealthy perfectionism. So performance. We chase perfection out of fear in our performance. And that can be with our grades, that can be with our job performance, that can be a concert we have coming up if we play an instrument. And we play in our hearts and in our imaginations a future video where we are failing. And that that fear, that that mortal fear of failing in our performance fuels us toward more and more excellence. They mention appearance, so we chase perfection out of fear in our appearances. And this can be our physical appearance, it can be fashion, and fitness. This can be in our digital appearance and how we curate ourselves to the watching world. There's a book I want to read by Deborah Heidner called Growing Up in Public. Now, doesn't that sound interesting? It's described as, quote, the definitive book on helping kids navigate growing up in a world where nearly every moment of their lives can be shared and compared. Yikes. And so we chase perfection in our appearance out of fear. Or with interpersonal perfectionism, we chase perfection in our personal relationships. And this can actually be interior, they say, or exterior. So external perfectionism is when we're overcritical and when we demand perfection from our relationships and those in our life. If we have children, oftentimes we, we see them as reflecting on us and so we demand something on them that we would never demand on on ourselves. Coaches can do this with athletes. We can do this with colleagues. But this interpersonal perfectionism can also be internal, so we live constantly with an imposter syndrome, and our inner critic is constantly saying where you are messing up, and how you could and should be doing differently and better. There's moral perfectionism, where we chase perfection morally out of fear. And this can look religious, it can look secular. I mean, the religious may be obvious to us. We're so insecure in our our attachment to the Lord. We're so insecure there that we sort of pursue kind of like a a David Beckham-esque obedience. We're just afraid. We're afraid of letting God down, We're afraid that He's mad at us. We're afraid that He's constantly critiquing us. And so we pursue moral perfection. We don't have to be religious to suffer from unhealthy perfectionism. In the moral sphere, many have pointed out that our secular culture is as morally perfectionistic as it probably has ever been. There are so many rules about so many things. And we're so afraid of breaking those rules that we can live in constant fear. About our behavior, and then of course there's the all-rounders. This is when we chase perfection in just about every area of our life because, again, fear, fear, fear. I mean, just look at how much of our life is anchored and fueled by fear. <laughs> it's scary, but it's good to name it. And we have to ask: Is there a better way? I mean. I'm glad that, you know, Richard Winters says there is such a thing as healthy perfectionism, which some have called pursuit of excellence. I'm glad that exists. But saying to me, hey, be healthy, is like saying to me, jump out a window and fly. Be healthy, Joe. Come on. Be healthy. (laughs) Stop that and do this. That doesn't help. What I need is more than a pep talk. And what I read in Hebrews 10, friends, offers me more. You see, Hebrews uses the word perfect, and even applies it to you, and even applies it to me, those who are trusting in Jesus, but not in the way that I think many of us expect. What do I mean? Well, Hebrews expert Karen Job says that perfection in Hebrews does not mean moral perfection, but fulfillment of purpose, or finishing a goal so if we're talking about like a tomato garden the perfect tomato is the tomato that falls off the vine and you just cut it and you put a little like you rain some salt on it and you need it fresh as is it's a perfect tomato because it's fulfilled, it's grown fully if we're talking about building a deck perfect is that moment you have your friends over for a barbecue, the project is finished And so when we read a couple verses in chapter 10 that call us perfect, what does the author mean? So verse 1 says, the Old Testament law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And then verse 14 says, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, So what on earth does this mean? Well, here are a few answers that I like, given by some Bible scholars that I read this week. The fulfillment, perfect is the fulfillment of the Christian goal. Namely, access to God, which was formerly open only to the high priest. That's perfect. Perfect, it means to continually be in right relationship or perfect relationship of intimacy with God. Having free access to His presence and continual forgiveness. It would seem to mean that in Christ, believers are no longer alienated from God and so no longer need to be repeatedly reconciled to Him. Friends, perfect and purpose go hand in hand. We are purpose for intimacy with the Lord. That's why we were created. Think Eden, okay? And so when Jesus gives us that, we are perfect. We are exactly how we were created to be. We have intimacy and access to God. That, friends, is glorious. And remember why Hebrews was written in the first place. Ancient Jesus followers were tempted at this moment to turn away from life with Jesus to their old way of life without Jesus. And so that would be a giant mistake, says the preacher of Hebrews, because perfection, intimacy with God, perfection has arrived. It has arrived. And so if you... Leave Jesus, you're leaving that space, and that is tragic. And so we have, if you look in your Bibles, this image in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, I like to work at a coffee shop, and I often sit next to the front door. That's my table, often. And on sunny days, like this one, I can tell when somebody's about to walk in. Why? I see, I see the shadow. Well, this shadow is, according to Hebrews, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It's good. God doesn't make bad stuff. It's good. And it's gracious. Because it's connected to organically to what comes next the substance. It's not final. It's not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Because only Jesus brings you into the holy of holies. How and where you were designed to be. In the presence of God, forever intimacy with Him, where you can be totally transparent before Him about all of who you are, and yet experience to that same depth knowing love. Because of Jesus, our great high priest. This is what you could call and should call gospel perfection. It's not based on fear. Fear of failure, fear of punishment, fear of rejection in the areas of our performance. It's not based on fear of those things in our our appearance, in our relationships, in our moral behavior. It's based on one thing that cannot change. Take a look at verse 5. Jesus came into the world. That's what it's based on. Christ came into the world. That's what it is based on. And that cannot change. Gospel perfectionism, if we want to call it that, is not based on fear. It's based on secure attachment. We are free, therefore, to pursue God's best because we are declared perfect in Christ. We have everything we need. And friends, take it from a recovering, unhealthy perfectionist. I think this alone can cure toxic perfectionism because this is the perfect that you are made for. You know, forget all these other sort of pathways that we are currently walking down, and just think about this. The perfect you were made for is given to you by Jesus. And I think we can learn three things about this gospel perfectionism in this passage, and I'll say this. First, it's free. Perfect is given, not self-generated. So again, I encourage you to look at verse 14 again, and then we'll also... Cast our eyes on chapter 11 for another verse. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then in chapter 11, And all these, though commended through their faith, talking about the whole sort of um, saints of old, these men and women we read about in the Old Testament, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Do you see it? When Jesus comes, perfection comes. Perfection, in other words, is from God. So Karen Jobs actually says it's Hebrews' way of saying what Paul likes to talk about when he talks about justification. We heard Christy just read from Paul, and we just heard about justification, which shorthand is this, the future verdict of righteous, the future verdict of right with God is declared over us today. The verdict has come, right with God. You are in intimacy with the Lord. Which means we are perfect, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And this passage here highlights this in a couple ways. Well, first of all, this. Jesus does for us. He does for us. So after stating the problem in verse 4, that animals cannot take away sins. Hebrews wants us to hear Psalm 40 through the mouth of Jesus. So if you take a look in verse 5, consequently when Christ came into the world, he sent. and he quotes, so it's as if Jesus is speaking, you know, Jesus the word is speaking the word. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body, Lord, have you prepared for me. Think of Jesus saying these words. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, Lord, says Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus says, I've come to do the will of God. Jesus does for us. Jesus does for us. What does Jesus do? Well, he dies for us. So Jesus does for us. He also dies for us. He obeyed the law of God for us. But he also took on the penalty or the covenant curses on our behalf. So he doesn't just do for us the covenant stipulations. He doesn't live a life of covenant faithfulness before God and others. He does that for us. He does for us. But he also takes on the sanctions of the covenant. He takes on the curse that all of our disobedience and rebellion deserves. And that is the cross of Jesus. He dies for us. Look at verse 8. When Jesus said above, "You have neither desired nor have taken pleasure in sacrifices," and He's re-quoting this uh, this psalm and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, verse nine. Then He added, "Behold, I have come to do Your will." He does away with the first these animal sacrifices in order to establish the second, what He came as the final perfect offering, verse ten. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once and for all. So here's the big takeaway. Animal sacrifices can't cut it. Which is why Jesus came to offer himself. And scholars started to me point out why. There's basically four big reasons why this is so. Why animals can't, animal sacrifices can't cut it. Number one, an animal is coerced. Jesus is free and willing. An animal is confused. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. An animal is different. Jesus is like us; he is like us in every way except sin. Mm. Fourthly, an animal can only let one person approach God in the Holy of Holies, the High Priest. Jesus invites us all. Amen. Jesus does for us; he dies for us. Our perfection is freely given; it's not it's not self generated. It's nothing that we can do. So my in laws have a game in their basement. I wonder if you played this game before. You know this one? A large ring hangs from the ceiling on a screen. And there's a hook on the wall. In this case, a tree. And the goal is to drop the ring perfectly so that it catches on the hook. And I think this is how so many of us approach life, isn't it? We, see, we seek to perfectly... Orient all that we're doing. So it catches on the hook. We seek perfect grades, we seek perfect stuff, we seek perfect relationships. And what's happening? We're seeking Eden. We're seeking intimacy with God. What we're made for, but we seek it in all of the wrong places and in all of the wrong ways. We want the ring to catch. The only problem is, and this is the whole argument of Hebrews. Without Jesus, we're playing with a string that's about an inch too short, and we're going to try the, our whole lives, and we're going to be frustrated our whole lives because the perfect we're looking for is not the perfect that's offered in Jesus. It will never catch our efforts. Only Jesus can give us the perfection we long for. The offering of Jesus is verse fourteen what makes us perfect. It's a gift. The only perfect that matters, friends. The only perfect that matters has been given to you. It's a gift. It's free. Second, gospel perfection, we could say, is final. It's fixed. It's not fickle. You see, life as an unhealthy perfectionist is fickle. It's constantly moving. Perfection and the goals of our perfectionisms are constantly moving. And then the minute we think we have it, it slides away. It fails. We fail. And then the failure is is just overwhelmingly crushing, isn't it? But the perfection that Jesus gives us is final, and it is fixed. And this is the heartbeat of Hebrews 10. This passage contrasts two things, and I wonder if you uh, saw it as I was reading. The first thing it contrasts is these yearly reminders of sin versus a once-and-for-all offering. And so in verse 3, if you take a look, Hebrews brings to mind the annual Day of Atonement, this yearly sacrifice that cleansed all of Israel for their sins. But then verse 3 is a dagger. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. That is a dagger, right? Because despite this grace, it had to be repeated again and again and again and again. So the shadow side here was that this was an annual reminder of our sin issue and our sin problem. It's just continually coming up like a -a whack-a-mole. That might be a 42-year-old reference. Contrast this though to verse 10, which says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, what? Once for all. And then verse eleven, we're kind of zooming. We're coming from a zoomed out position of seeing the annual sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. And then in verse 11, the author has us go down into the daily. Because daily sacrifices were also happening in the life of the believer. You know, on your phone, when you can, with your calendar app, kind of zoom out to the annual calendar. That's what we were looking at. And now we're zooming into our daily calendar. The thing that shows us what's going on today. And so in verse 11, we read this. Every priest stands daily. Like I'm standing now. And like you're not doing right now. A priest is standing at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. Contrast this to verse 12 though. Which says, but when Christ had offered for all time. A single sacrifice of sins. For sins. He what? He sat down, like you all are doing, and like I am not. Priests did not and could not sit down. As it's been said, there were no chairs in the temple, precincts. It was a continual thing, because sin was a continual thing. My wife's an art teacher, and she's... she's, More than that. She's an art teacher with an art cart. You know the art cart? You don't have your own room. So she's an art teacher with an art cart, and so she borrows rooms. And she tells me the one thing, kind of like the one ring on her watch that sort of, you know, she never has trouble closing is the stand-up ring. Make sure you stand up 12 times a day. It kind of mocks her. She's like, okay, I'll stand up 12 times a day. She stands up all day. If you're a teacher, you know this feeling. Or if you work in the food industry, you know this feeling. Many other industries, too. It's the same thing the next day, and the same thing the next day, and the same thing the next day, and the same thing the next day. The the next day. That's why they have, in the medical community, those dance go clocks, right? Because apparently they're good for standing. They don't look like they are, but apparently they are. i noticing way more crocs in the medical industry, so maybe that's what's happening. This is the life of a priest, only more so in the Old Testament, doing good work, but it's never-ending good work, because sin is never-ending. But Jesus offers himself, and then does what? He sits. His work is final, it's fixed, and it's for all time. Okay? The perfection that he gives us will never change, it will never go away. Why? Jesus sits. If his action is is what makes us, or doesn't make us, perfect. Then Him sitting means that we will forever be perfect. Because His offering is complete, it's final, it's fixed. It cannot change. He's either sitting, or He's not. If He's sitting, then all of the work of forgiveness, all of it, all of the work of forgiveness, anything in your life, past or future, that could separate you from the love of God, has been finally and forever finished, because of what Jesus has done. And that alone is the only fixed thing that you can count on in your lifetime, and that is your perfection things. And I want to close with this. Gospel perfection is fuel. It fuels real change. So unlike toxic perfectionism, which is sort of where we all default, myself included, uh, toxic perfectionism does not lead to real change. It leads to temporary change. It leads to... Uh, Maybe fear based excellence. It maybe leads to excellence at the expense of destroying the relationships in your life. It leads to burnout. Well, the perfection of Jesus leads to real change. Real change. Sustainable change. Loving change. The kind of change and growth that I think we all want. And so look at verse 14 again. I'll put it on the screen. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we are two things at once according to this verse. Perfect and being sanctified. Being made more holy. Karen Jobes says that, quote, These two categories, though distinct, must nevertheless be inseparable in the life of the Christian. The only way to truly grow is to be declared perfect by the only person that matters. That's what Jesus did when he offered himself. But there's also the promise that we are being sanctified in verse 14. And this, friends, is the motivation. Because gone is the fear of failure. When we are declared perfect in Jesus, gone, gone is the fear of failure. You see it? It's gone. And therefore we can grow, which is the heart of verses 15 through 18. So verse 15 says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to us, and now quotes... Jeremiah, the new covenant promise. This is the covenant that I will make with them after all those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. That's internal, okay? Motivation level. I will write them on their minds. Internal, again, motivation level. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, the preacher says, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, God does not remember your sins, your failures, Let that sink in. Earlier in verse 3, we see a life without Jesus is this. There is a reminder of sins every year. For them, it was the daily and annual sacrifices that tell them that this chapter, the chapter we're all longing for, has not come. And so, year in and year out, like waves on the shore, they're constantly reminded of their longing for Jesus, for a Messiah. For us, though, it may not be sacrifices that remind us daily of our sins. It may be our conscience of guilt. You can see this in verse 2. There's a consciousness of sin. There's that sort of sense that we can't shake, that we've done things wrong, we've left things that we should have done and undone. And it can be like a rock in the shoe, can't it? I mean, we can keep walking about our day. We can even walk into church. We can even serve in the church. But dang, that that rock is really, really, really hurting right now. And I'm not, I'm not, I just am not sure what to do about it. It's a feeling of guilt that we can't ignore. Well, I encountered this quote from Russell Moore last week. Quote, guilt and shame are fallen human conditions, not ancient conditions, not pre-modern conditions, not modern conditions or post-modern conditions. The question is not whether the world around is grappling with guilty consciences. It's not. It's how they are dealing with guilty consciences. And so I just want to ask you, how are you dealing with your guilty conscience? How are you dealing with it? How are you grappling with that? You're very real and non-ignorable failures. Well, the only final, and when you hear this, the only final and the only satisfying answer is the offering of Jesus in your place. Because in Jesus, in Him alone, there is no condemnation for sins past and present. Your failures cannot condemn you. In other words, as it says from the preacher here, don't take it from me, take it from the preacher, God remembers your sins no more. That's the only thing that can clear our mind and heart Of that fear. That daily fear that drives us so much into things. There's no condemnation for our sin. Because Jesus was condemned in our place. There is no curse for our sins and our failures. Because Jesus was cursed in our place. Past failure. Present failure. Future failure. All failure stinks, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it all is terrible. When we fail to love others well, it's terrible. It feels terrible. But here's the, here's the thing, the takeaway. It's lost its teeth. It's lost its teeth in Jesus. The removal of the fear failure. Of condemnation, of punishment. Now this releases us into a life of healthy change. This lack of fear. What does it say in the scriptures? Perfect love casts out. And remember, healthy perfectionism has to do with our motives. And the New Covenant is all about our motives. And because our sins are now forgiven, it says here, by the Spirit, we now want to obey the Lord. The law is, in other words, written inside of us. It's on our fleshy heart instead of stones outside of us. It's within us. And without the fear of condemnation, the forgiveness of sins without with with that, and without the fear of condemnation, what, what happens is a miracle. We slowly, with fits and starts, become what we already have been declared to be. Holy. It's an amazing thing, and it's a gift that Jesus gives us. When we fail, we're not totally crushed. And when we are faithful, we're not walking around like look at me, I'm amazing. No, no. In fact, we just we just simply have a life of gratitude. And the Spirit works fruit in us. I mean, this is really the remainder of Hebrews. If you're going to stick around with us, we're going to explore all the ways in which we can grow pursue good things but not out of fear this is a list that Karen Jobs makes because of what's true because you are perfect in Jesus they're off of sin be holy pursue sexual holiness pursue a life of love and hospitality remember the prisoners live a life of contentment share the good news of Jesus with others do good. Pray for others. All these things are yours to pursue out of freedom, not out of fear. So let me just ask you as we close, how are you trying to change? Is it out of fear or is it out of freedom? You are perfect in Christ. And now you can pursue excellence in God's best without falling into the trap. In Hope Church, what would happen if our community was marked by this healthy gospel perfectionism? May we have the freedom to mess up. But with that same freedom, may we pursue God's very best. Without the fear of condemnation or exhaustion up ahead, because we feel like it's not us. It isn't. Jesus, once and for all. As made you perfect. You have intimacy and access with God. Like this very moment. And yes, so, Lord, we come into your presence. Release us, free us from toxic perfectionism. Do so even now. Would its grip release from our heart? And would we instead rest in what you have given us in We ask for this miracle. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.